0: From Luminary and built Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, Lena Nair, Global Head of HR at Unilever. My job today
1: is to be in the service of 170,000 people of Unilever. It's not to run HR and be a boss of a big function. It is to be in service of people. How can I build a better business? And by building a better
0: business, better world. Lena's journey from internship all the way up to the C-suite at one of the largest consumer products companies in the world. No matter where you're listening to this podcast, chances are pretty good that right now you've got something made by Unilever. Unilever owns more than 400 brands, household names like Lipton Tea, Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream, Dove Soap, and Dollar Shave Club to name just a few. The company is over 90 years old, and it operates in more than 190 countries. So if you do have a Unilever product in your cupboard or freezer or bathroom, that's not particularly surprising. Something you might not know about Unilever, though, is that recently the company met a 10-year goal to achieve 50-50 gender balance in management across all of their global operations. And the person overseeing that goal appropriately... Was Lena Nair. Lena's worked for Unilever her entire career. And in 2016, Lena became the company's global head of human resources, overseeing its massive 170,000 person workforce. Now, this is not something Lena imagined for herself in 1992 in her native India. That's when she joined Unilever as a summer intern. At the time, Unilever in India was 98% male. And becoming the first female global chief of HR was definitely something Lena would have had trouble imagining. During her early years as a Unilever trainee in India, many of the factories she'd be sent to audit didn't even have women's bathrooms. I talked to Lena just a few weeks ago, and because of the global pandemic, she spoke to me from her home in London instead of at a recording studio. And out of all the situations she's faced... Lena says this crisis is the greatest challenge of her professional career and life, which, as you'll hear, is saying quite a lot. I grew up
1: in a place called Kolhapur. It's on the road from Bombay to Goa. It's famous for footwear. Kolhapuri chapels, everyone's heard of them in India. And my town's actually famous for making these.
0: And um, when you were a young girl, I mean, did you um, did you have burning ambitions? Did you have a sense of what you kind of wanted to do in life?
1: I wish, Guy, I could say that that you know I knew absolutely what I wanted to do, but it's far from the truth. You know, I grew up in a small town. I grew up in a joint family with sixteen cousins. It wasn't a town where there were you know I can't think of any role models of women who worked. And uh, there wasn't a proper school for girls so so the first sort of English medium school for girls came up in town when I was sort of six or seven, and uh, we're still called the first batch of the first school that came up in town, so you know, I grew up in a very humble surroundings in a small town with absolutely no idea of what I wanted to do. In fact, one of the things I would always hear was, you know, as a woman, what are you going to achieve in life? Why are you so desperate to get educated? What are you going to do with it? And uh, I remember being very, very upset when I was six or seven. And I sort of came running into a room where my mother was having a cup of tea, coffee with her neighboring friends. And they were having a little chat about their kids. And I heard my mom say that, you know, I wish Lena was a boy. Because you know, she's talented and now, you know, she's a girl and she's not going to be able to use any of those talents. And I remember being quite disappointed, sad, crushed, angry, many of the sentiments and really young at that time, but I still remember it so vividly. So I just wanted to make a difference. I didn't know how, I didn't know what it was going to be. So my battle when I was growing up was really about saying, I want to get educated. I don't know if I'm going to apply it. I don't know if I'm going to ever have a career, but I love learning. And can I just be
0: supported to learn? Okay, so you went off to study engineering, and this was presumably what you sort of thought you were going to do with your life.
1: I uh, took up engineering because I enjoyed maths and I enjoyed physics. And I did not enjoy biology. So there wasn't much of career counseling in those days. And uh, I saw my uh, cousin brothers were all going on to study engineering. So I thought, here I am. I'm going to go and study engineering. Mm. And, um, you know, I enjoyed engineering. I went on to work as a telecom engineer for about three, four months. And I just didn't like it. I was a lousy engineer. I mean, I I enjoyed the intellectual challenge of problem solving, but I didn't actually enjoy applying engineering. And I had a wonderful mentor who really helped me understand that management might be a better career option for me. And that I loved commerciality. I loved business. I loved being around people. I was all about leadership, engagement, motivation and he just sort of gently nudged me to think of management and to think of human resources
0: hmm. so he was basically saying to you hey look you know i don't know about this engineering thing it might really not be you for you you might not be right at it you know it's it, it's a kind of a risky thing to say because if you're someone's mentor and you say, "Look, you're not really cut out for this," but you might want to try this thing. I mean, that I mean, it was very good advice, but but it could have turned into the person that you thought, "Oh, this guy said I couldn't do it, but I still persevered." you know what I mean? You know, that also working for three four months as a telecom engineer,
1: you know, I was bored out of my mind. I was waiting for lunchtime <laughs> so I could interact with people. I was in an R and D laboratory and trying to understand more about fiber optics and picture in picture television. And you know, your heart. My heart didn't sing. And Hmm. you'll hear when I talk about purpose and passion, my heart didn't sing. So you know instinctively, okay, this is not where really I'm getting my zing from. Hmm. I remember talking to my father and saying, who was a big sponsor for me and was, you know, the number one person in the family who said, yeah, she should get educated and we shouldn't worry about whether she's going to have a career or not. Let her just do what she needs to. I remember telling him that I wanted to do uh, personnel. It wasn't even called human resources in those days, and he was so disappointed. He said, you know, why would you do this now that you've studied to be an engineer? Why don't you do more things in engineering? Hmm. So. It was a tough moment being, you know, 20 years old and uh, thinking, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And just feeling this incredible pull and draw to do human resources. But generally being, other than my mentor, most others thought it wasn't such a great idea.
0: Human resources is such a specific and, and, I mean, especially for a young person to think this is really what I should focus on. How did you even know that that was going to be the right fit? Obviously, it was. But how did you know at that point in your life?
1: You know, one of the things I talk to a lot of young people, including my sons, my young sons who are 21 and 18, is if you ask 10 people who know you well, what you're really good at and what makes your heart sing, they can tell you. They can see it. And it's a little bit of that. I sort of instinctively had a draw and pull for this. But I didn't know it could have been a terrible mistake. But I was investing two years to do an MBA. It was not the end of the world. And I knew that if at the end of two years, I came back thinking this wasn't for me, maybe I could go back and be an engineer. Yeah. As it happened, from the very first class, I sort of felt, ah, this makes sense. I felt at home. But, you know, in many ways, learning to trust your instincts, learning to ask people around you, learning to trust your set of mentors uh, has been part of some of my lifelong learnings.
0: It's amazing because you have spent your entire career with Unilever so far. You joined Unilever out of business school in India in 1992 as a trainee, as a like a summer trainee. Unilever has obviously huge – it's a multinational. It has huge facilities and production uh, facilities all around the world, including in India – how did that happen? Were they recruiting on on the campus?
1: On campus, recruiting on campus. I attended the campus interview. I joined as a summer intern for two months. I loved it. I loved the quality of people I was working with. I loved the quality of work. And then I was um, fortunate and blessed for them to come back and tell me they wanted me as a management trainee or what we call the Unilever Leadership, Future Leaders Program what we call it today. We used to call it the Management Training Program in those days. And they came back and gave me an offer and and I grabbed it with both hands and there's been no looking back.
0: Wow. So, all right. So you joined Unilever as a trainee. And what what was your job? Well, I mean, because you presumably you're thinking, OK, you're already interested in HR and you're starting to think about HR. But but that was not your first job there.
1: No, the first five you know the first couple of years as a management trainee, I spent in sales for six months. I was selling tea in Haryana in North India that I was a salesperson. I ran personnel for factory. I understood about industrial relations. I can only think back with great a great happiness, pride, learning, call it what you may. I also realized pretty quickly that I was one among a very, very small group of women. In fact, I hold the record for being the first woman at many things in Hindustan Lever. I, I you know, I often say that I didn't break any glass ceilings, but I was actually breaking glass basements. Because, for example, I was the first woman to go into a night shift in a factory that made margarine in India for Unilever, and I was the first uh, woman who went and built a road along with rural villagers in, in ETA and so on and so forth. So I started the first sort of first footsteps into the privilege and the burden of being the first woman at many things in Hindustan Lever. <laughs> so uh, the first six years were a number of what I call grassroots experience. I learned what it takes to make our products, to sell our products, to Work with unions, and I'm a big proponent of saying you must in a business really know what are the growth drivers of your business, how product gets made, how it gets sold, you must experience that you must do it. So those were the first six years before I started
0: moving into more and more human resource roles and and eventually you became the general manager of HR for essentially for Unilever's division in in India, right Hindustan Unilever.
1: Yes, I became the general manager for the human personal care business, running HR for our largest division. And then I became—I was on the board of Hindustan Lever as the executive director for human resource, and again had the burden and privilege of being the first woman in a hundred years on the board of Hindustan Lever as wow. the executive director for human resource. So uh, after my first five six years in the business, doing like I said, grassroots roles, I did a number of roles and started partnering different divisions, and then became the head of HR in
0: 2007. When you are running HR in a in such a complex and um, incredibly vibrant country like India, I mean I can't even imagine how, what it entails, right in terms of just the the level of detail and the different types of, of employees. I mean you've got everyone from presumably from people on the factory floor to people in in C-suites that you are sort of shepherding through the process.
1: Absolutely, huge complexity. I'll give you some of the numbers. We had forty-six factories with ninety-six trade unions, fifteen thousand people in the in the business, and a hundred thousand people who sold for us in different. You know, they were merchandisers, distributors. So yes, it was uh, massively exciting, huge, complex, big scale. It's the third largest company in India in its market capitalization terms. So yes, you are in the spotlight. You are uh, uh, under focus. And Hindustan Lever also had a huge reputation for building a lot of the leaders for India Inc. It was called the CEO Factory of India and continues to be called that. So huge profile of building talent, not just for Hindustan Lever, but for India Inc., so massive honor and privilege for me to have done that job for you know five years of my life. And it built a lot of the skills that's helping me be the chief HR officer for Unilever today. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me.
2: If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power
0: their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Lena, you, um, you were with a group of a senior team from Unilever in Mumbai in 2008 at the Taj Hotel when it was attacked by terrorists um i think most people listening will remember that horrifying story um almost i think 200 people were were lost their lives um in that attack um and you were you were there you were you had to i guess hide for 24 hours um during that siege what what do you remember about it
1: guy that was without doubt one of the most difficult nights of my life Mm -hmm. and something that changed me as a person as it would when you realize that you might not go back home to see your kids again You know, my husband and I were both stuck in the Taj that night and you know hiding the entire night having two boys nine and five sitting at home waiting for their parents to turn back after dinner and seeing this horrific news on television that the Taj was being attacked and you know without any doubt it was a terrible night and one you know I wouldn't wish on my enemies and hiding the whole night hearing shotgun shots through the night screams it's just you know one of those things that change you forever one of the things I remember from that night is the extraordinary bravery and courage of the staff in Ataj who who worked so hard to get us to safety. There was a young girl, Malika Jagar, who was, you know, no more than maybe 23, 24. I remember her bravery and courage. I remember how much the staff uh, tried hard to, to find places for us to hide. So there was a higher chance that, you know, one of us would survive among couples. Hmm. And I also remember feeling after that and reflecting after that that i would follow my heart with even more passion and even more intensity because i don't want to waste my time in this world i've been given a second chance not many people have, have had a second chance some of I, I lost some friends and you know you in many ways feel more determined to give the best of yourself to make it count To do things that really matter to you, to your family, to your colleagues, to your company, to the world.
0: When you say it changed you, I mean, you were up until that point, extreme. you were on the fast track. Um, Clearly, you were identified by Unilever, um, not just in in India, but at headquarters in the U.K. as somebody who they needed to keep an eye on, who was going to go places. And you were um, rising up very quickly, the youngest th- th- this the the first, this, and and all of these roles and all and, and then this thing happens. And how did that change the way you thought about, I don't know, your career and and your purpose? I mean did it did it kind of make you rethink all of the ambition that you had had up until that point?
1: You know, I do think it brought a lot more maturity to the way I thought about career. Hmm. Because even now, when I think about career, I don't, I stop thinking destinations. I want to do this role, then do this role, then be in that role, then sit in that seat. I became more thoughtful about trajectories. What is my trajectory of learning? What am I attempting to do in this? For example, my job today is to be in the service of 170,000 people of Unilever. It's not to run HR and be a boss of a big function. It is to be in service of people. How can I build a better business and by building a better business, better world? I constantly think about things I do beyond Unilever. So for example, I think about how can I influence the investor community to give more importance to human resources and human capital? I'm in Davos every year for the last four years, and I'm speaking on forum after forum. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm putting out blogs out there all the time because I want to build a movement and a coalition of people who care about human beings and want people to feel fulfilled and happy. So in many ways, the intensity around my purpose grew sharper. And I'm so grateful for the platform that Unilever gives me, that I can use this platform because Unilever is so respected for what it does as a company, for what it does for talented people, that I already am lucky to have this platform where people are eager and keen to listen to my point of view because of the reputation that Unilever has.
0: Any, any organization, right? One of the key challenges is finding the right people, for the right jobs, right? It's it's it, hiring. Well, is an incredibly complex and difficult thing to do. And I know that one of the things Unilever has done, and and that you've kind of spearheaded, that's really innovative. You've really kind of streamlined the process of finding the right people, in part through by using AI, by using algorithms. Um, tell me what what you're doing. How does that how does that work?
1: You know um we have uh, 2 million people who apply to us 2 million Yes. And, uh, you know, about half a million of them are graduates applying to us for 800 graduates that we take across the world. So for me, this was, you know, I think it's a very demotivating experience when you're so excited about Unilever and you're among those two million people. And, you know, when you apply to Unilever, if all you get is thank you for applying to Unilever, we'll get back to you. And besides, I don't blame any of my uh, teams because 2 million people, even if I employ 5,000 recruiters, it's not enough to get through 2 million applications and do it any justice. So it's really that that we started working with. And we've sort of digitized the entire process. So when you're an applicant, a graduate training applies to us. You first upload your CV using LinkedIn. It's really a one, you know, one second job. You do it. Then you play games. We've partnered with organizations like Biometrics, where we've created really strong games that help us understand who will be a great fit for Unilever. Then they go through an interview. They go through a, they, you know, have a selfie video. And this selfie video is watched by our talent advisors, along with some technology to help them be able to go through 2 million selfie videos and make sense of what the person is doing. And then, of course, a smaller number go through what we call discovery centers we don't even call them interviews because they spend a day day and a half interacting with many of our leaders and we actually look for fit because they're all bright you know so it's really more fit but for me the biggest win was all two million people who applied to us now get detailed feedback they get two or three pages of here's how you did on the games you played, here were your biggest strengths, here were the areas of development, here are the things that make you a better candidate for Unilever because you fit with what we're trying to do. And it even gives suggestions saying maybe you should think of consulting because you seem to have strengths in blah blah blah, which might suit that environment more. So, you know, that's what I like the most, that finally the two million people feel like they've engaged and participated in a process and have got some meaningful feedback. From the company, that's really what we're trying to drive. It's helped handle scale. It's helped humanize it. So high tech and high touch have to go together.
0: Lena, I want to I want to ask you and dive a, a bit deeper into practices in HR, right? Because retention, um, I mean, retention is key, right? Because when you Hiring, onboarding somebody, bringing somebody, first of all, finding the right person and then bringing them on board and then keeping them is expensive. It's very expensive to lose somebody. You've already invested a lot in bringing them on and training them and giving them skills. It's cost you a lot of money as an employer. So when you think about all of the priorities that you have as a leader – of HR is retention right near or right at the top.
1: You know, uh, I must say that I believe if you work hard on engagement and motivation, you will land up retaining. I'll give you some numbers for Unilever. Our global ret- attrition is less than five percent. Hmm. What retains people is one if they feel the stretch and challenge in what they're doing, the second thing that keeps people is when they feel that they can live their purpose and passion. People will stay when they feel they have leaders who provide them the empowerment and space. And they will stay if they feel they're rewarded and recognized for what they do. They're valued for who they are. So I feel that the harder we work on making sure people feel engaged with Unilever's purpose, feel engaged with their own purpose and what they want to do, they feel like Unilever cares about their well-being, about their learning, then we land up retaining them. I can tell you the fundamental reason that people leave are because they're not stretched, they're not valued, they have a boss who sucks. It's many of those reasons. It's never money. Mm -hmm. Money is a reason they might say because it's much more convenient to say somebody else gave me a package that was better than having the difficult conversation saying my boss is a difficult person to work with. So, My advice is work on engagement and motivation. Retention will be an outcome of that.
0: You know, a lot of companies um, talk, and and not just talk, but really vocally committed to diversity. Pretty much most Fortune 100 companies uh, around the world, diversity is one of their core values, right? As it is with Unilever. And you have have achieved, for example, 50-50 gender balance in managerial roles, which is which is super impressive. But I'm sort of ask you to play a thought experiment with me, which is for people who sort of hear the diversity thing and, and know that it's the right thing to do or that you know, culturally it seems like the right thing to do but aren't doing it, what argument would you make to them that there is actually not just a moral downside but a business and financial downside by not emphasizing diversity?
1: You know, uh one of the things, Guy, we did was invest in our top thousand leaders so that they really buy into why we need gender balance. You know, beyond the point, I have less patience for business case. And I'm famously, uh, you know, viral in a video that was, uh, which I've never been viral before till this sort of video of me snapping and getting angry at Davos went viral saying, Show me a business case for why men are good for business, and I'll write you a business case for why women are good for business. You know, where's their business case saying men are good for business? We just assume it. It seems very easy, half the world is women. Of course, we should have more women in our business. But that not everybody buys that. So we actually invested time in our thousand leaders. For some, the business case appeals. The are people who buy into it because they have daughters and their daughters start asking the question are you saying I'm going to go into a world where my brother has a better chance than me really is that the world you're building and that makes them think for some it's the talent angle for some it's the moral angle so you've got to convince your top thousand two thousand leaders in whatever way they best buy into it that there's rational emotional moral risk all sorts of reasons for doing this so we did lots of wonderful things we focused on numbers and we focused on culture we did both so in numbers we ensured that every job you appoint for has to have a balance slate they have to be as many talented women that you find as men we uh, instituted and replaced what we call gender appointment ratios we said simple gender appointment ratios is in five years how many opportunities you had to make an appointment in your batch How many times you appointed a man? How many times you appointed a woman? Hmm. Simple. If you have a gender appointment of ratio one, it means for all the opportunities you had, you appointed equal number of men and women. So it just threw a spotlight on the leaders who are simply not making progress. Because in five years, if you've not been able to make decent appointments, you really have to question yourself, saying what's going on here. So it's a combination of immense leadership commitment and focusing on numbers, focusing on culture. So it's a combination of all of these things.
0: Hmm. Lena, you oversee 170,000 employees around the world. And... I mean, obviously, you're dealing with so many different types of, of workplace cultures and and environments, right? I mean, the workplace in Germany is very different from the workplace in the UK or, you know, Korea is very different from the workplace in Japan. I mean, the, the workplace in India is super different from the workplace in Jordan or, or in Lebanon. But as the head of HR for a worldwide company, how do you, like, reconcile those differences?
1: You know a guy you touched upon a very important uh, thing, you know one of the biggest joys of my job is that one size doesn't fit all. Yeah. I always have to think about this. I have to flex everything we do to make it relevant to the context we are in. I-, I give a very simple example, you know remote working, working out of home, which has now become all of our reality with covid when we went to do a lot of agile and remote working as part of a diversity and inclusion agenda. You know, people in Europe said, great, I love this. You know, it works for me. People in Japan said, no, I'm not sure I want to do this. We have smaller houses and I'm not sure I want to set up office in my house. The women in Pakistan said, listen, my mother-in-law lives with me and if I'm working, she thinks I'm available to talk. It doesn't work for me. Women in Saudi Arabia said, you know, I actually want to get out to the office for a few hours a day for a, you know, for a cheat. So something that looks so simple that we're giving you the flexibility to work out of home anytime you wish wasn't joyfully received in all parts of the world with the same enthusiasm. So it's taught me many lessons on how our people programs have to be nuanced for the context they are in, have to be flexed, have to be translated into the context, both literally as in language translations, but also figuratively to make it relevant for, for the population that we're speaking of in that country.
0: Lena, we're in the midst of um, the greatest global health crisis um, in living history, right? Um There's been nothing like this um, since 1918 and certainly for virtually everybody who's alive today. Um, A huge challenge for all businesses. Uh, Many businesses will not survive this. A company like Unilever is is resilient. It's huge. And so it probably will be able to weather this storm better than others. But there's no question that you will face some very difficult decisions if you you haven't already – in terms of staffing, personnel layoffs, furloughs, etc., talk to me a little bit about um, some of these hard decisions that you are already finding yourself having to make.
1: You know, I, I really, really passionately believe that when we're going through a crisis like this, a company like Unilever has to protect its workforce and protect the pay. We are one of the first companies to go out there saying we are going to protect the pay of our workforce, which means our employees, contractors and others for three months. So that's the first thing. Now, the way we're approaching it for our people, we, we were framing it in three buckets. We say protecting our people, which is protecting lives and livelihoods of our people. When I say people, not just the image of 170,000, but the more than double that number that work for us every day. You know, people who clean our offices for us, people who, you know, run our catering and people who sell for us, you know, merchandisers and shops in Indonesia. Our entire ecosystem, we've said we protect the pay. The second bucket is ensuring business continuity, which is ensuring our products are needed by consumers more than ever. Sanitizers, hand cleansers, mm. food products. You know, we are the humble soap is our best defense against coronavirus till vaccines come. So ensuring business continuity is a big part of our people program. And the last bucket is future-proofing our business. How are we ensuring people are using the time to get skilled if they have free time that it's free because now they no longer have to commute. How do we ensure they're learning the skills even while sitting at home? How do we ensure they're thinking about the new normal and the way business and world is going to change and creating products and services that make meaning to consumers once we're through the intensity of this? So I do think as a company, we must try to protect our lives and livelihoods as far as, as long as we can. But we must use everything in our power to find the savings in our balance sheet to make possible this looking after our people, which means recruitment, salary increases, redistribution, reallocation, really being clever about all the levers in our control, less travel, saving on things that you... Events, who's doing events anymore? A company like Unilever has conferences, events, meetings, loads of them happening all the time. You know, this is a year that's not going to happen. So use squeeze everything you can out of the non-people line and find a way to make your people productive Mm. and uh, contributing to this crisis.
0: Would you say, and I I think I know the answer to this because I think it's probably the answer for most people, that you are now in the midst of the greatest, not just challenge that you have seen for Unilever, but personal professional challenge in your career?
1: Yes. This is the most unprecedented thing I've ever faced in my life. And I've been through terrorist attacks and I've been through a whole host of things I can tell you about. But this is by far the biggest, most complex, the most difficult to understand. This is the time to truly put people first. And if we take care of their safety and we make them feel brave and we support their livelihoods and they feel we care about their livelihoods, they will put their entire focus and attention on getting the business to survive and thrive during these
0: very, very difficult times. That's Lena Nair, Global Chief Human Resources Officer at Unilever. In addition to her role at Unilever, Lena serves on the board of British Telecom, and she's been named by the Indian magazine Business Today as one of the top 25 most powerful women in business for seven years in a row. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top, from Luminary and Built-It Productions.
2: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen,